Yeah, it's probably more terrifying when you realize that we're not allowed to use any of our safety features because it's so you've got a radar altimeter, so you don't want to cause radiation hazards and stuff. So it's literally just me guessing how far below the ground it is for them. So when I'm looking at 150 and I'm trying to work out how far the ground is below them, and then they're pointing at a fence or something, and then I'm like, oh, okay, we've got to go up. It's um, probably less exciting for them than they thought it was going to be. Today's guest is an ex-Army engineer and Army loadmaster, as well as a former Victorian police officer with experience in the critical incident response team and as a negotiator. After 11 years as a police officer with the Victorian police force enforcing the state of emergency requirements for COVID, he witnessed and experienced public opinion of the police force shift. Disillusioned, conflicted and highly concerned, he would simply not work in a job where as a police officer, he was now feared by the public. So he quit the force, giving up his career, income and badge. Although interested in politics, he does not aspire to it naturally, but feels that someone with credible experience needs to step up into the role and provide leadership that he feels is sorely lacking from career politicians. He is running in the 2022 Victorian state election, episode 83, Chris Burson. Welcome to One Moment, Please the podcast where our guests take a moment to tell their stories of how they've overcome adversity to achieve success and you take a moment to tune in to bring on the inspiration. Perfect. Hey, Chris. Hey, how you going? Good. Thanks for coming on. You're welcome. Now, you are the, I'm saying you member, but you're the Victorian member for angry victorians party or because it's not registered are we allowed to say that so yeah i mean part, like how does it sort of say it so the registration process is a little bit convoluted um so for the federal one it was an email you send out an email and then it went to your members who had signed up and then they just clicked on an email and then they're like yeah we're members and then that was it it was done in like two days but this one you've got to you sign up and then you've got to send them out in the mail and then assuming it hasn't been raining or the snails haven't eaten it or they didn't just think it was junk mail, then they would then have to tick three boxes and then the questions are very ambiguous. The last one where it says, are you a member of any other party? So people are members of the federal party, but then they don't realise that the AEC and the VEC, so the Australian Electoral Commission and the Victorian Electoral Commission, are different things. It's like AFL versus VFL. Um, So they have their own commission there. So you can still use the same members, but then when they get a letter, they're like, I'm already part of a party, so they tick no, in which case they don't then become registered, even though so they think they're doing the right thing because they are part of another party, but under the VEC they're not. So I was talking to the shooters and fishers and they were saying the same thing that they had to explain to all their members that it's the bottom one is a yes because it's a different organization. So there's a lot of and I don't know if it's by design or if it's just how it's always been done and they just can't be bothered fixing it. But yeah, so at the moment we're not registered, but you can still run as the party, but if it's not registered with the VEC, they don't acknowledge it sort of thing. So you can still be part of a party, it's just not a registered one under their their terms, um, even if it gets registered after November. They just obviously stop for the election because they've got a bit on. So what happens then on the electoral vote you run as an independent, like on the ballot? Yeah. So you still can put underneath that you're part of a party, you just won't be above the line, which then means basically you're out of the game because if people can't, a lot of people just donkey vote and they just vote for whoever the top left is. So if you get pulled out of the ballot and then you're top left, you might get 6% of the vote just because. 
um, yeah, there's a whole bunch of people that just tick top left and then they're done the first one. So whoever gets top left is generally going to get 4%, I think they say, extra. Wow. So, yeah. And then you've got donkey voters who don't care at all. So in the federal election, um, I think the sixth highest amount of votes was actually donkey voting. So there's just 150,000 people who just didn't care, which would have been a seat. So all those people that say my vote doesn't count, they could have elected anybody they wanted to get in if they'd all done it. I think it's interesting, and I think it's interesting because you've come from a, a military background and then a police forcing background before you decided to go into politics. So I want to sort of talk more that than the politics side of things. Mm-hmm. Um, what made you go into the military? It was post-September 11. So yep. what made you go into that? And I think the reason why I'm more interested in that is obviously that then carries over into um, what you're going to bring to the politi- the political side of it as well. So. Why the army? Um, yeah, so initially I wanted to be a jet pilot when I was younger, and then um, a cadet. So was it Top Gun? Was in, I, Did Top Gun do it for you? Well, I mean, it came out. I was eighty-two, and it was in eighty-six. If I'd seen it, it would have been Top Gun. But I did see Top Gun <laughs> and think jets was the way to go. Um, but yeah, like I always had little books about um, jets and all that sort of things. So I was, I was mad for it. Went for went um, gliding in Benalla and things like that. Um, Is that terrifying? Glide. The glider, you're an engine. It's, Terrifying. It's, it's weird because it's not from the start. So you um, you get towed up by a, I don't know if it's a tug plane or a tow plane, whatever they call it, and then you're flying and it feels like normal because you've got an engine noise and you're getting pulled by something. And then when he disconnects, that's when it gets weird because yeah, it's so quiet. Though. Yeah, it's so quiet, so peaceful. And then you're also realising that you actually have no, I mean, you've got thermals and, the pilots know what they're doing, but when you don't know what's going on, you're like, I'm actually just in a controlled crash from now. You know, like there's yeah. no, <laughs> there's no where you are. But yeah, but I mean, those things are amazing. They will sit up there for ages. Um, and then they teach you things like they're like, look at the birds over there. They circle. That means there's a thermal. So you can go there and then you can get lift that way. And I was like, I didn't realize you could go up again once you were in a glider. I thought you were just on a controlled descent, hoping that you landed in the right spot. But yeah, there's actually a bit to it. So not does as, that mean that they dangerous. then can, because I always think, well, they have to sort of land in some random field because they've got really no control over the distance. Yeah. And then some poor bugger's going to have to figure out how to get them out. Is that Yeah, really... just land in some farm somewhere, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so when, Is that when you're up there, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, they have a runway. So, and uh, there's a lot of stuff they do beforehand where they work out the winds and, um, yeah, where, where where you'll be able to best land and go out and do oh, that sort of thing. That but, sounds um, like technical maths to me. Exactly. Oh, yeah, and that's well, where I you. jumped out of it. <laughs> when they're like, you need to you need to do physics, you need to do like advanced maths and that. And I went, really? Well, I didn't see I didn't see Maverick doing any of that at the time. Um, when I got into aviation, I worked out where it came from, but I still had to do the maths anyway. But I could use my phone, so it didn't really seem like that oh, big a deal smart. to me anymore. Smartphones have changed the game, haven't they? Yeah. Bless them. All um, right. Yeah, so, sorry. I, um, where was I? Yeah, so on um, September 11 happened, I was doing a, um, a massage diploma because my parents were like, when you left high school, they're like, you have to do something. So I started doing a hospitality yeah. course and then that wasn't for me. So I wasn't really going. And then I just said, mum, I'm not even going. Like I need to, I'll just go and work a bar. She's like, no, you'll have to do a course. So I did a massage course. Um, and then I went and spoke to the army and they had a job for me as a combat engineer. Um, but I had to wait until that was, um, 
available. So I finished the, well, I almost finished it. I'd left just before the final exam. So I'm an exam off doing a diploma in massage. So it probably means nothing now. Why didn't you just complete it? I just figured like it was another 500 bucks just to do the exam and I was leaving the weekend after anyway. I mean, sure, should have done it. But would it have even counted now? Because you've got to do concurrent things to keep relevant uh-huh. stuff anyway. So, And since I haven't done it in 20 years, probably not all that relevant anymore. I mean, it's probably the same thing. I don't know. <laughs> I don't Your know. Army that, mates that, that when you got the special muscles in the, in the yeah. barracks, whip out the massage skills. <laughs> yeah, I didn't bring that up all that much with him. Yeah. Actually, I did. I brought it up at one point, but then oh, that's they so did, funny. Blokes, blokes didn't believe me. They, um, because I went, I tried out for Australian Idol as well when I was trying to get out of the army. So I worked get out, out there was there was a loophole where if you got paid more than your CO did, then you could get out. And I figured that if you win Australian Idol, you were on more than what he was on. So that was the yeah, it's on my leave application trying out for Australian Idol. People didn't believe me again for that. So. People think I lie to them a lot, but I'm like, this is actually what I'm doing. They just don't think it's real. So, so can amazing. you hold a tune or were you oh. just in it for shits and giggles? Uh, I, well, I didn't win. So okay. there's that. Did you, how, far did you, how far did you get? I feel like I have to YouTube this now. How far did you get in nah, Australian Idol? You won't find it on YouTube. That's how far it went. No, I, um, I ended up being in, like, I was in the line for like 14 hours. Oh and goodness. then just the way the system worked, when you got in there, they they pulled everybody in, and then blokes like um, Guy Sebastian rock up right at the end, um, like two hours before um, everyone gets let in, and then he's in near the start, so he's fresh, and there's been guys out practicing all night. Because there was people there before me, and they'd been there for like 18 hours in the line because they thought they were going to get seen to first. So um, it's a bit of an endurance event doing <laughs> doing straight idle as well, yeah. just for your, your mental toughness. Mm. They want to like like crack yeah. it when they go in and they're terrible and they think that they're amazing and they've been standing in the line for eighteen hours. <laughs> yeah, it's funny though because there are people in the line who are generally good, and then by the time they get in there, they haven't eaten anything, they haven't drunk anything, and they've been awake for over a day. Um, so uh, people's reactions are a little bit, and whether that's by design as well, because I know they do that um, on maths where they don't let them eat any food and then they just give them heaps of alcohol. So obviously they're worse than they normally would be. Yeah. Um, so Get I just wonder out. if it's all. Is this, is this speculation or do you have proof of this? Uh, <laughs> we'll say it's speculative. A, no, I had a, had a friend that went on that, that dating one where they, they meet each other like, first dates Married or whatever first it was. Sight. No, it's not that one. The other one he was on was, um, it was, it was a, one of those dating sites where they, they, didn't meet the, they didn't know the other person beforehand and they just sit there and they go on a date the first time. And then you're like, yeah. do you see rude and arrogant? You know, they've been drinking for six hours before they met each other. So they get them both drunk and then they go in and then they get to eat. But, yeah, it's very shady behind the scenes. <laughs> it's not um, – it's it's designed that way. The people you see on TV aren't generally that bad. They just haven't eaten all day and they've been given free liquor and told them, oh, yeah, we just sit here for a minute and then it turns into six hours where they're waiting and drinking with no food. And then, um, yeah, and then they obviously – I mean, they still act. That's still how they act when they're drunk, obviously. <laughs> but, you know, it's not really. Well, you're I don't, not really know. I don't think we behavior. can say categorically that happens with everybody. I think that that probably happened with the person that you know. Let's not disparage the entire show <laughs> <laughs> based yeah, on alleg- one person's allegedly, experience. Allegedly. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure that they all get fed and, you know, fed and watered. I get fed like up. An- <laughs> that was so, um, okay, I mean, so you. 
you joined the military and then you like the it was the army, wasn't it? You joined the army and then you tried out yeah. for Australian Idol and obviously wanted to go on maths. That's okay. fine, I understand. Australian Idol was about a weekend of my army career. That was that was the extent of it. Um it's not not a massive highlight of my career. Yeah, yeah, and then I was yeah, so I was a combat engineer in Townsville at the start, and then moved down to Twenty Two Construction in Oakley down in Melbourne, and I was doing a um, personal trainer's course, like every other army guy gets out, tries to be a gym gym bloke. Um, but a friend of mine told me about um, air crewman or loadmaster, and he um, he said this is the the best job in the army. So he said you should try out for this and do it. So then I um instead of getting out, I signed up to try and do that and then there was four of us out of 120 got in um so i was like well it's like winning australian idol for me and then i stopped having to pack march carrying anything fly around everywhere <laughs> it's not really army anyway anyone who's in the army who knows a load master is like that's not army um why is it the not- best job why is it the best job in the army and what is a load master uh so Everywhere else in the army, well, not everywhere else, but most other places in the army, especially combat corps, you have to march everywhere. So you have to carry all your own gear. Like you might get a truck occasionally, but it's generally just hard labour the whole time. And there's a lot of downtime waiting for people to make decisions. So you're out there just doing sleep deprivation exercises, basically, whilst officers come up with plans for you. Um, whereas in the as a loadmaster, you're I have to have eight hours sleep. I have to have air conditioned facilities when I go to Timor. Um, you know, like you, because the civil aviation reg, um, regulations override <laughs> tend to override the army. You um you have to get looked after. So it's uh, even the mechanics used to give us a lot of grief because they didn't have air conditioned. They had huts. We had air conditioned um, connexes. Um, so we were very That's much funny. The, so is that like the, the pilot? So you're in more like the air force. Is that or the Air Force regulations? If it's the federal avi- aviation, it's actually, the, it's actually the Civil Aviation um, Security yeah. Agency. I think it is CASA um, that that regulates most of what we do. So New Zealand used to laugh at us all the time because we had so many safety regulations, and New Zealand just like, if you don't hit something, that was safe as far as they're concerned, <laughs> uh, which makes for a lot more exciting flying. Um, we have yeah, but we have safety distances. You can't. You've got to fly fifty feet above the trees, whereas they'll skirt the trees with the, the bottom of their aircraft. Um, but, yeah, so Loadmaster, you are generally an air stewardess where you just hang out and you hand out, like, juice poppers to people if you're doing transit flights. Um, but outside of that, you do we do external load rigging. So we used to take um, artillery guns, put them on the bottom of a black hawk, pick it up, move it from one place to another. In Timor, you'd pick up a Land Rover because their old one was broken, so you'd pick one up, move it over, pick up their broken one, bring it back, the mechanics would fix it um or a lot of the time when i went there it was flooding so we'd be doing a lot of stuff with the local government where you'd fly the roads and they could see what needed fixing um you could see if certain villages being cut off because sometimes villages would be on an island with a gushing river either side and they wouldn't have access to food um so we would then fly rice in and fly the food and see how they were going because you could take medical people there with them as well uh what else do we do Oh, you do like search and rescue things where we had um, we had one guy fell down the side of a hill 
and um, everyone was looking for him. But the only reason we could find him is because he had his phone and he ended up waving his phone at us, which he wasn't supposed to have with him. But yeah, but once he'd busted his leg and fallen down the bottom of this, um, it was getting warm, so the fan started. It's a decent fan on it. Um, yeah, so he'd fallen down the side of a hill, and then nobody could find him. They thought he'd gone a certain amount of because they'd started walking down the hill trying to find him. Then it got dark and it was unsafe for them because they were all going to fall down as well. And then when we flew around on the night vision goggles, when he had the um, waving his phone at us, he was he was a bright beacon. So that was um, that was lucky for him. But then we ended up you've got to go down and then yeah, we do the winch stuff. So in the Guardian, I don't know if you've seen that movie. Um, they winch people up and down. Sometimes you're the guy on the end of the rope. If like in that example, he couldn't get up and help himself out, so we had to you winch one bike down and then do that. Um, when I was in Sydney, it was more Hang of on a, a minute. Just on that story, I'm predicting that he got in trouble after all of that, even though the phone saved him. He got in trouble for having his phone. Nah, because we were the only ones that knew he had a phone. So oh, we, okay, good. So yeah, they're like, "How'd you find him?" They're like, "Oh, he um had a lighter." We saw it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, yeah, he, he he got in and then he's like, he's like, "I can't. I'm not allowed to use this." I'm like, yeah, cool. We didn't say it. Um, but yeah, so, and then, but in the, in the black roll that we have, um, so you have green roll, which is more your, your generic army. So you'd pick up a whole bunch of troops and then you would fly them into a, like an open area, like a field. And then you'd do a landing with like eight black hawks and then everybody would get out and run off at once. So it'd be, it's just an aerial insertion of troops. Whereas the black roll stuff is working with the SAS and the commando guys. And they would, um, so we might be chasing um, container ships off Williamstown or um, we might be, I don't know, inserting them with, so they do long line, which is like 150 foot of rope below the helicopter. And then you'd fly around with them. So it was an easy way to, you'd throw the rope down, they'll connect themselves up and then we could pick them up and take them out if they were in like really tall trees or. That looks um, like fun though, doing that. Terrifying yeah. fun. Oh, it's good. For me, I mean, oh. it's not as it doesn't feel terrifying for me. I'm not in the rope though. Um, but those guys are literally just going. That's uh, it's on you. What happens to us now? So they they all just sit no, there. No, and... like I'm terrified of heights, <clears throat> but for me that doesn't seem terrifying. But well, then I haven't done it, so I'd probably be terrified <laughs> on the end of the rope. Yeah, it's probably more terrifying when you realise that we're not allowed to use any of our safety features because it's. So you've got a radar altimeter, so you don't want to cause radiation hazards and stuff. So it's literally just me guessing how far below the ground it is for them. So when I'm looking at 150 and I'm trying to work out how far the ground is below them, and then they're pointing at a fence or something, and then I'm like, oh, okay, we've got to go up. It's um, probably less exciting for them than they thought How many it was guys be. did you smash into a fence? I haven't done it, but there is actually a, a video where we had one guy who actually did um, get caught by a barbed wire fence. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, it's a video they show, and this is one of the things about, um, accountability and stuff. So obviously after that happened, there was an investigation and the guys all said, look, um, uh, and then if you look at the footage, cause there's people filming it because they're laughing at their mates about to get picked up and thrown around where everyone gets scared about it. Um, but there was a big hawk that was trying to fly into the engine, which would have meant <clears throat> if they have a bird strike, we've got to put it down, but we've got people below them, so we've got to try and put them down whilst also trying to crash gracefully. Um, so, But everybody got sidetracked by the bird and stopped paying attention to the guys on the end of the rope. So um, that was a big learning outcome for them. And the guy yeah. ended up getting – they were 
you can see the guys they're trying to climb up the rope, trying to get away from um, the fence that's coming up, and then they got dragged through a barbed wire fence. One guy got ended up turned upside down and got caught under his neck. Yeah. And um, but it was okay, a let's... crappy old barbed wire fence. Oh, He's no. all right, okay. which is surprising. Yeah. But, okay, um, that's good. It, it actually snapped on his neck. This barbed wire fence because it was old, crappy. Like the farmer obviously hadn't fixed it in a long time. But yeah, it was a crappy old rusty Thank fence. So it's ended goodness. up. Yeah, ended up snapping. So he was very lucky. It's got a cool scar too. I would suggest. Um, yeah, and a strong yeah. neck. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, yeah, it's crazy watching it, but um, it's very lessons learned. Sort of so, stuff. how long were you doing that for then? Um, I did the Lodi thing for three years. So yeah. the, the the course is nine months in Oakey near just past Toowoomba, up in mm-hmm. um, Queensland. Um, but yeah, so it's nine months there. You do the first bit on a um, on a four one two, which is basically what they use for most search and rescue choppers now um and like your, your westpac i think they might be using newer ones now but it was a while ago but yeah so it was basically a huey that had an extra two blades and an extra engine so it had some extra safety features than the, the old huey did but it's the same body um, and then you go from that to then your your type so then we went to blackhawks and then you you're in the back learning how to do your job whilst you are also with the pilots who were also learning how to fly. So, I mean, that was interesting on its own. Um, you know, having, I mean, you have obviously professional pilots with you and you have a professional loadie in the back as well, but it's just interesting having two rookie loadies and then a rookie pilot up the front who's trying to learn how to fly and just everybody just trying not to make the other guy look bad and then also trying to learn and, yeah, it's... Um, it gets, gets a bit hectic during the night flying because if some people aren't paying attention or they don't, because when you've got night vision, it's very tunnel. If you like, if you make your hands into two circles and look forwards, that's all you can see at night time. And even on that, you can't ju- um, judge depth either. So you've sort of got to go with, you can focus them into a certain range and then you know if things get clear that that's getting too close, whereas if they're still blurry, you know you've sort of got a bit of a safety range. But That, that doesn't sound very... Um... No. No, it's not good at all. It's it's very it's very, and but even now and what happened and like to the guys, batteries going? Them you stuff. Oh yeah, we always carry a lot of spare batteries, but you get it. They last a fair while. The batteries, um, but even when you're walking around, so you can't judge whether something is a shadow or if it's a hole. So you'll see if you're watching guys walk around on night vision goggles, especially with whenever they got the one of them, you see them like lifting their feet up, walking really weird because they're not sure if there's shadows from the moon or if it's a hole in the ground or, yeah, I mean, they're better now. <laughs> the, the goggles are a lot better now than they used to be. <clears throat> so why but, did you stop doing it? If it was that fun of a job, why did you stop doing it? Um, I just, you get, it, the army's your life. There's nothing, there's nothing else you do after, like any sport you play is sport in the army. Any friends you have, uh, mate, you go away for six weeks, then you come back and then you realise you don't actually have any friends that aren't in the army. And then, so you, even though you spent six weeks with that guy, you're like, hey, mate, what are you doing? It's like, I don't know, you want to go out? And you're like, yeah, all right, let's go hit the town or whatever. But, you know, so you, even though you've spent six weeks with this guy and you're like, thank God I'm getting away from him now. Uh, and then about two hours into it, you're like, oh, do you want to play a game online or do you want to do whatever? Because <laughs> you actually don't have anything else. The weekends that you had off were just spending time with the same guys that you just spent the whole week with. Um, and then, but when I got to Sydney, it was, um, the, the pace at 171 is, is, is a lot. You, you, 
you do a deployment over summer or at some point you'll do a deployment to Timor as part of rotation and then Sorry, I was, the 171 is working with the commandos in the SAS oh, in their support. Yeah, so 171 Aviation Squadron, um, yeah. and that's part of 6 Aviation Squad, um, 6 Aviation Regiment, which is down in Sydney. So that's, yeah, mm-hmm. so 171 is the squadron in the regiment. So they have, they have other choppers down there as well. I don't know what they're doing now, but they used to have um, Kiowas and stuff doing recon. They had another one there. So, there's a so couple you're of dealing with General Army? General Army doing this? Not down in Sydney, no. Okay. Um, so Townsville was general stuff, the great mainly green roll, and then um, yeah, the one seven one was the special area. Yeah, we had, well, I mean, we did a special operations course, so it's like okay. we 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 tag along with the special people. Like if you were a commander or a sass, they wouldn't say we were special. <laughs> um, similar to oh, they probably my would, mates. Yeah, <laughs> they they also. Um, what was like Heston? I was like. We, we were there at the same time, so there's every chance he was oh, in the back. I wondered but I, how you knew Heston. Okay. Well, I don't. That's not actually how I know him, but we probably have oh. worked together, which um, because I would have been wearing a full face mask and he would have had a, you know, secret identity mask on and his helmet and his aviation glasses on or whatever he was running with. Um, yeah. but, I, asked, yeah. I asked around about Heston and I had very positive things. Mm. So, mm. um. Yeah, so I mean that's why I got into politics because I yeah. saw him doing something different. But yeah, so aviation, I was—I just remember, and it, it was just a moment where I was—we were flying back. We'd just done like a harbour run, which is you go down, you go up from Pranawa up along the coast, coming through Victor One, and then you, which is the flight route, um, and then you turn around, the heads come down, and then you fly over. Sydney Harbour Bridge. It's not allowed to go under it. Apparently, one guy did it one time, and it's never been, never been done again. Um, You'd be so happy if you were that one guy though that got to do it. I mean, sure, you retired. <laughs> you retired afterwards, but um, <laughs> it's, it's not, you, you get to say you're that guy. Um, yeah, but so and then there was guys sitting on the top of the Sydney Harbour Bridge, and they were like all waving at us, like wow, and like we're waving back, and it's like sunset, and it's amazing. I've got heaps of photos from from the time as well but and then i just remember going these guys are getting paid and like they're paying 850 bucks to do this walk and they're all so excited about seeing us and we're getting paid to do this and then i got a message from one of my mates talking about playing the footy grand final um and that they were all getting ready for mad monday and that sort of thing and i was just like i don't know i just got crazy fomo and i was like how am i where i am now and wanting to be where they are and i was like i'm just taking this for granted now it's um I probably need to move or this is my life. So I was, that was it um, almost nine, um, that was it almost nine years then. And then um, that's when I was like, well, I need to go home because I was either going to be doing this for however long and I should probably just commit to going up in the ranks and, and this is my career and accept that um, or get out and start something new. And then each time I've sort of been able to see my future, it doesn't, I don't know. I don't like knowing what's coming up, and I was I could always come back and do that job because you don't need to be super fit. You don't need to like it's not like infantry where your knees are going to give out and your back's going to like be cooked forever and that sort of thing. <clears throat> um, yeah, and then I was like, I think that's me done. So I went and spoke to them, and then they said, "What about if we give you the instructor's course? That'll be an extra five grand a year." Um, and they're like, and you've been around for a while now. You can probably look at doing your sergeant's courses. Um, so I would have been on probably 120, which wasn't bad at all for 2008. Uh, I mean, it's not bad now. <laughs> but um, 
yeah, and I was just like, I've just not, I've always wanted to be a copper before that. Uh, so I tried to join the police really? before the army. Yeah, so I wanted to join the police before the army. And then they said, you don't have enough life experience. Um, and I was like, what? Well, I don't even know what that means. And they're like, well, exactly. But um, so I was, I think I was 19. And then they said, if you go to a job as a 19 year old and you've got a guy who's 52, divorced three times, has like four kids to different people who, you know, and his wife's turned them off him and he wants to commit suicide and you turn up and you're like, oh, it'll be all right, mate. He's going to be like, well, what do you know about life and why would I listen to you? And I was like, you guys, do you guys, do you reckon you can tell your dad, give your dad life advice about things? Like if you, and I was like, my, I doubt very much my dad would listen to me at 19. I don't know if he'd listen to me now. Um, well, it's interesting that they did. So what year was this that, that they were saying that to you? Because I suspect that's probably changed. They're so desperate for members at the moment. I suspect oh, yeah. that they're probably just, yeah. Yeah, you were lucky to get in under like 25 back then. Um, yeah. But uh, they said, like they said, you can apply. They're just like, you probably just won't get in. But when they had a massive waiting list then, they weren't all that overly interested in, in um, quotas and things um, like they are now. <clears throat> but um so that was sort of yeah like they're like well we have we have a lot of good candidates that we want to get in and it's like you've got a bloke who's 25 and he's he's traveled he's done some things he's had a job he's got a trade he's worked you know he's already had a job it's a lot better for you to have people who have actually done things before to then be able to you know relate with the the general public i mean you're not going to have been able to do everything but if you've had a job, you understand financial pressures. You have um, been out and rented. You, you know, you, you know what people go through. Lived a bit of life. <clears throat> yeah, which was interesting when I got back at thirty, and I hadn't worried about rent or health insurance or you know <laughs> any of these things. And then someone's like, "You need to get health insurance." Life admin. Gonna... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. It's surprising how much the um the army. You know, everyone's like, "Oh, yeah, you learn resilience and." You go through hardship and you do that. I'm like, yeah, but they don't teach you the easy stuff. Um, you know, like I got told, I'm like, yeah, it's time for you to see the dentist because there was a check and balance that was done by my boss. It was like, yep, he needs to go and have his half yearly dental checkup or his yearly dental checkup. He needs to go and see the doc for his six monthly or, um, you know, and then you had to do your fitness test based off a system that said, yep, you need to do it. Um, it's, everything was looked after. You could, and it happens quite a bit with army guys, but you, you can literally spend your whole fortnightly pay like out in the first weekend, which is why you generally have two massive weekends like because you get paid fortnightly in Townsville. One weekend is huge, and then the second weekend is very quiet because people live like they're um, rock stars the first weekend, and then the second weekend they're just trying to put together enough food that they can get fuel to get off the base. Um, if you're living you on can, base, you don't have any expenses. You do, but it comes out of your um, your next pay. So no. my accommodation is already paid for. I already have access to the mess, so I can literally spend everything I own because I have food and accommodation, um, mm -hmm. and plenty of plenty of guys do, which is why when they get out, life's actually quite hard for them because they've never budgeted before, especially if you've been in for ages. You only do four mm -hmm. years, maybe you weren't too far out of the system, but Mm. And you and generally you start getting on a good wage. So you bought a motorbike or you bought a new car or you did all this sort of stuff. You got deployed and got a lump sum. So instead of getting a house deposit, you paid for your new HSB outright or 
in town. So really, it, the the hardship is getting out and learning how to do a life admin. Yeah, that's a that, well. I mean, that was the biggest issue I had. Um, wow. Yeah, it's yeah, it's interesting because did you it, feel like you got off this hamster wheel? Like, was it really like you literally just stepped off this hamster wheel of just keep going? Because obviously, it's a big. Um, organization it's designed to keep going and functioning yep. when individuals step off it like any organization did you mm. really feel like that was the case or because you had such a I, cushy job it didn't really when you before you hopped out of it? no it was it was a cushy job i'm not gonna lie about that um again i'm still not backing off that that was the best job in the army um <laughs> but well, i did what most guys that don't really have their own life goals is I got out and joined the police um because it's yeah. sort of a midway so it's not it's not jumping out straight away it's sort of a, a little bit of a step down because you still um I mean I did want to be a copper beforehand but there's a lot of guys who are like it's got a lot of transferable skills but it goes from being your whole life to being an eight-hour shift I mean you might do 12 hours or whatever depending on your overtime but it's still your old skills are still transferable um but your people skills that you had back then are probably have a little so bit much. well yeah because you just expect a lot more i think um one thing i had at the academy was just simple things like you'd say things like don't go jack on your mates and people would know what that meant and you'd be like just means don't like help your mates out don't screw each other over and just people that came from civvy street that came across like there'd be a door and there'd be two doors that could open and there'd be a squad of 30 on one side and a squad of 30 on the other side and there was just no initiative. So everybody would be trying to squeeze through this one door. Um, and you'd be like, is the other door? Look, why can't we open the other door? So then you'd open the other door and then all of a sudden everybody could go through. I'm like, how did how does nobody see this as an issue when everyone's trying to funnel into this one thing on both sides and it's all about them? They've got to get through the door first. I'm like, you can literally open it and then everybody can go in one side, out the other side. That's why there's two doors there. Um it's very other... interesting that that level of lack of problem solving was evident. Well, yeah, the other things too, like you'd be if you were taking things out of a cupboard, everybody'd go in and try and get their own one. So everybody'd be going in at once, and I'm like, just hand them out, but make a chain. So that was a big thing in army was always make a chain, and everybody'd jump in, set off set to each other, and you could pass things in and out really quick. Uh, and then the last guy would just grab whatever it was. When he was the last guy, he'd leave, and and you'd know how many had them. Whereas there, it was everybody was trying to all rush into a little um, bread crate, trying to get whatever it was they wanted to, instead of just handing them out. And but teamwork, I didn't realize how much teamwork came into things at the army. Where mm. at the police, it's not it's not really a team initiative until you get to um, like tactical units and things. It, it goes back to being a team, but. Um, and just discipline, like being, I'm, and I'm the first to admit I'm not great at being on time, but um, it was just amusing that timings wasn't really a big thing at, at the police. They're like, yeah, you, your thing's here, we've got to move, and then we cruise down and people get a coffee on the way or do whatever. And it, w- it wasn't, I was expecting it to be more like Kabuka, but it was not, <laughs> it wasn't like that. But it gets confused as well because when you go down to the defensive tactics area, they treat it differently. And then you go back up to the law firm and then some boss or a sergeant will come out and be like, hey, my name's Gary. How are you going, everybody? And everyone's like, are you Gary or sergeant? It's like, oh, call me Gary. We're here to learn. I'm like, oh, okay. And then people get confused because then they go from there down to DTs. And they're like, oh, g'day, Tim. And then he's like, excuse me? 
It's a senior counsel. DTs. Oh, defensive tactics. Sorry. Oh, okay. So yeah, so when you're doing your shooting, trying to link lingo out, Chris. I don't yeah, know. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I should have just a, a subtitle underneath when I'm talking half yeah. the time. Um, yeah, so you're going to do defensive tactics or your shooting or whatever, and then it's um, at least there's a dividing roads sort of know you need to switch on when you get down there because they'll yell at you for walking out of step or um, doing whatever. I don't think it's that way anymore, but um, you look now, you you can't even say mean words to people, which is a real. Um, so, for example, when I was going through, there was women that would stay in for three to four years, and guys were generally around five to seven, um, and a lot and Generally, I think the reason girls were leaving after three to four years was babies. Um, mm. So they'd been in, they'd meet someone, and then they'd spend enough time, and then you know they'd want to start a family. So I think that was more the reason why they were getting out. Whereas now they're getting out at one to two years, and guys are leaving at roughly three to four years. Um, and that was a little while ago. At the moment, we're losing people at a rate of two to one every fortnight. Um, but the difference now seems to be we're not really you know that stat. Like where does yeah. that stat come from? So it's in the Gazette. So every okay. um, every fortnight there's a Gazette that comes out and it shows how many people um, come through, as in recruits, mm-hmm. and then how many people leave. <clears throat> I mean, there's resignations. There's um, like re- people retiring as well. So it's not mm-hmm. it's not all just people resigning. Like there are retirees in there, but the vast majority of it is people um, resigning. Um, it has it's been that way for a while now. Probably since the mandates came in, it was it sort of went that way. Um, but yeah, like if you're if you're leaving it after one year, you've got nine months at the academy, and then you've got um, about six weeks of holiday built up. So you generally got about six weeks holidays that you're taking in the next three months. So generally, people are doing like a month and a half of policing. You're leaving it a year, and then you something happens, and then they leave. At the academy, then oh, oh I thought it was. I, I wasn't considering the academy as part of that time. Wow. <clears throat> yeah, That's so people, terrible. Yeah. So, I mean, there's other things that happen, like Burke Street, for example, when that happened. Yeah, that um, was awful. People were doing that. That was some people's first day. Um, yeah. One of, yeah, yeah I, I did know one of the guys, girls, I don't know who it was, um, that was on scene. It was their first day. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of it, there's a, a lot. There was about 14, I think, quit that week um, after seeing that. And I was, I was sort of, thinking they should have done better trying to keep those people in because what do you, for starters, you're already, you've had the worst day you'll have on your shift. Like you're not going to have a worse day in your policing career than, than that. I know, but I don't think you ever think you're going to have to pull your sidearm, like your firearm on your first day and deal with that. I don't even know that that was their issue. I think it was more the, you know, like babies had been run over and, and Carnage, people were all over yeah. the place. Yeah, like it was a real yeah. war scene. Um, but they're not going to have a worse day than that, you know? So they're, I mean, I don't know what they're doing now, but it'll it'll still be affecting them just as much as it was. Yeah, and for those people. listening, sorry, Chris, for those listening that don't know, we're talking about, um, uh, we'll just refer to him as an individual. I probably think of stronger words than that. Um, that uh, drove down a very busy shopping centre in Melbourne and um, it was on the footpath, so it was not great. Um, but those, you know, now and those people now, I mean, I hope they're speaking to people, but generally the way we deal with things in the police is being able to talk to each other about it. And you can't a lot of the times talk to people that haven't experienced the same thing. 
Um, it's like mm-hmm. army guys talk to other army guys. Um, you know, even if you weren't in the same um, deployment as them, they sort of understand where you're coming from. So it sort of makes it a bit of a, an easier conversation. <clears throat> Whereas in, in policing, like everybody has a different story. And it's usually between you and like one other person. And then if that other person goes, you've still got other people to talk to. But Berg Street was such a large thing. There's so many cops involved. Um, I just feel like they should have done the best to even put them on stress leave for a bit if you really want to. But a lot of people I knew wanted to come back to work because they're like, I'm just sitting at home thinking about it. This doesn't, this doesn't help me. So it's where I think mental health plans need to be a lot more tailored rather than a generic response. But um, yeah, I had friends of mine that were trying to come back early um, and then they were like, no, no, you need a couple more days off. He goes, I'm literally just sitting here thinking about it. Um, he's like, I'm done thinking about it. I just want to go back to work and start moving on. Some people would say that's not good for you. You should process it or whatever. But um, other people would be like, I'm, I'm actually fine and I'm just sitting at home going, that's just what happened. It's part of my job. You know, senior members are like, this is, this is just what happened now. Um, and then if you leave them sitting at home, they feel like they're being punished for doing, doing their job. So I don't know. It's a bit confusing. I just think that if, you're gonna, if you go through something like that, staying around the people you went through it with is beneficial. So I just hope that the people who left feel like they've got someone they can speak to, whether they're all still in contact with each other over it. I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I, wasn't, I wasn't there on the day. We chatted to um, uh, one of the, he's an ex, there's actually a few ex-police officers that are involved with it now and they have, God, I'll have to in, put the name of it down in the show notes because I've forgotten it. But basically, it's ex-police officers that have set up um, one-on-one mental health sort of stuff. So ex-coppers, because once they mm-hmm. leave the force, there's no mental health access for them um, yeah. in that regard. So they've coppers can speak ex-coppers can speak to ex-coppers, sort of a thing. And it's an initiative and a charity that they've set up. So yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm, it's interesting. Yeah. I think it's something that definitely needs to be addressed more in regards to having that tailored approach. I was shocked that when I heard that there wasn't anything post, once you're out of the force, there's sort of nothing nothing for you. How long were you in the force for? Because you also did um, tactical response but and negotiating as well, didn't you? Yeah, so I joined um, and then went to, I was in Richmond. Richmond was my, yeah. um, my probationary station. Um, and then it's an interesting area. The, it's very considering consistent. I read your bio and it said that you grew up on the mean streets of Surrey Hills, and I could tell it was very tongue in cheek. And for those who <laughs> don't know Surrey Hills, it's a very affluent area. Um, in Melbourne, <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm probably the only one with a 3127 tattoo. Um, yeah, um, yeah, I do a lot of stuff in jest, but um, yeah, so Richmond was interesting because there was oh, there's obviously a lot of drug crime there. Um, but most of the people I met who were on heroin weren't really doing violent crime. They were um, they were literally just walking up and down streets, and they it was all about path of least resistance for them. Where so they'd walk up and down the street. If your door was open, they'd walk in and just grab stuff. If someone was in there, they were generally scared and they'd run off. Um, or they'd go up and down and they'd just try every door handle. And then if stuff was in there, they'd do whatever. But also found other places where junkies were getting. <clears throat> they were getting paid in heroin to go and steal things. So they'd give them shopping lists for them to go out and grab. Yeah, I had one guy that I did early on and he he was a heroin addict, but he would get a list from um, this store in Footscray 
and they would want an electric guitar and then um, other stuff. So he'd just walk into a music store and just, I mean, he's not hard to pick. And you can, I mean, you can catch him because he's not, he actually paid for something. He tried to pay for a music book with his own credit card, but it bounced. And then it was literally his card. I was like, how is this guy? One of the worst crooks ever. But um, yeah, but <laughs> he was, criminal. <laughs> yeah, but he was, but he was stealing stuff for other people. So these junkies get taken advantage of as well. So, you know, and he, he stole, he stole like a clarinet, which obviously he's not using, um, an electric guitar. And they were both around five grand, these things that he pinched. And I asked him what he got for it. And he got like three points of heroin, which was probably about 150 bucks. And I was like, I was like, mate, you know, you could have sold that on eBay and got heaps of drugs. But he's just like, oh, they just told me they'd give me this much. So I just went and grabbed it. And I was like. It's interesting that you're talking <clears> about <throat> the path of least resistance and trying door handles. My um, now husband, boyfriend at the time, used to live in Abbotsford, which is, for those that don't know, right next to Richmond. Mm-hmm. Um and he was dealing, uh, living with a housemate who was an alcoholic and we used to walk out the front door and the keys would be, front door keys would be left in the door handle because he'd be mm. coming home so Um How they didn't get robbed, I don't know. Mm. I don't know. So well, Again, mm. it, look, it's so, people are like, what, um, what can I do? I might get a sense of light. <clears throat> if you get a sense of light, they feel guilty and then they turn around and leave. Um, oh, really? Well, I mean, not all of them. Some of them still come in. Um, but, yeah, like simple stuff like if you have a – even if you have like a, a knee-high gate that they have to step over, they're like, Because mm. a lot of it's too much effort for them because they don't, they don't eat much food. They, um, you know, like that's not high on their list of priorities. So if you're at the top of a hill, they're not going up there. So, for example, when they walk down to – like they don't go past Bridge Road because then you've got to go uphill to get down to Swan Street. <clears throat> so generally bridge roads are cut off they're like mm, i'm not going up the hill i'll go back down um yeah, it's just really interesting just make your house a harder target than your neighbor basically it's mm. the easiest way to get around things um heroin people generally need an enclosed area where they're not going to get seen they need access to water um and then they generally want to be able to sit there for a couple of hours afterwards when they're on the nod without being interrupted so if you have a bunch of trees in front of a um, a hose and you have a little carport or something like that's ideal for them so if you end up opening your front yard and make it really obvious that people in there they'll stop wanting to go there anymore um but like yeah, it's literally just like dealing with the walking dead you you can channel people somewhere they'll go somewhere else um but that's and most of the heroin people that i end up catching for doing bergs and stuff were usually really apologetic and um so i sort of feel Oh, I feel pretty bad for a lot of heroin addicts because at some point somebody got them onto it and they just can't get themselves off it. Um, I mean, sure, the crime that they're doing is still no good, but I don't know that the jail system is great for them because they go in and then they meet other people who get them into more serious crime and teach them how to do other things and they don't generally tend to get off drugs in jail either because there's still... So hmm. what's your solution for that then? Or do you have one? Odd. Well... So I'd love to see, um, try and use it. And I don't know how much farmers would enjoy it, but using them to go out, because we've got a massive issue out in the um, in the regions with employment. Um, they can't get enough. So they're trying to get migrants over to do all the fruit picking and do all this sort of stuff. Whereas if you, like we're paying a fortune for these guys to go to jail to then come out and then recommit offences. If we manage to have some sort of, like I'm not against, I mean, not an actual chain gang, but 
if you have um, them out picking fruit, doing whatever, it gets them away from the environment that they're in and you could then have people speak to them and try and get them to get ahead. And if they enjoy it, they might even move rurally and then keep working there and have a have an actual job, whereas a lot of these guys have never had a job, never had anyone to work for, never had someone care about them. Do you think so if you, and I'm, I'm envisaging this, what you've just said in terms of whacking them on a bus and then, you know, take them out there. But do you think that if they're in groups of other drug addicts, because it's not just one person picking fruits, these farms are enormous, that Hmm. it's not going to foster a rehab environment or do you, because at the end of the day, if you're an addict, you're going to find a way of getting drugs. Um, Or do you think that it should be part of a rehab situation? So whack them into rehab and then they're, part of that is re- rehabilitating them to the society and having them as the fruit pickers or something. Yeah, well, I mean, they like they have to do time because that's just the nature of how the how the system is. But how, how mm. they do time, I think, is what needs to be reassessed. The They need rehab and heaps of people I've spoken to, there's no there's not a, nowhere near enough rehab centres and the ones that you can go to cost a lot of money. Um, I'm just figuring if, you, if you're spending a fortune on people going to jail, it's not cheap to put people in jail then we could both help the rural people with labour mm. and, I mean, they're not going to be unsupervised. It's not like you're just going to let them out in the fields and just do whatever. Um, but if the thing yeah, is... And I'm sure out, that it will be paid work, people, so it's not slave labour. Well, well, I don't even know because, um, you know, like if we're... They might have to pay their fines back for stuff. It, like, I mean, they're going to be fed, well, that's obviously. that's an interesting concept because you'd have to have to comply with the Australian um, anti-slavery legislation. But mm. if they're within the prison system, I don't know. I, I'm not aware of how that would work. But, yeah. I mean, that's an interesting concept. You'd have to pay back the per- person that they mm. perpetrated most the crime of the, against. Most of the, stuff that, most of the crimes that they're doing is theft or breaking yeah. property, trying to get in. Mm. So, you know, they get fined, but they never pay it because they, don't, they never have a job. So, I mean, if they can work their fines off whilst also – doing rehab and i mean if you look at aa it's all it's all alcoholics that come and speak to them so if you're mm. out working the fields and stuff you could have reformed addicts can be out there supervising but so therefore they now have a job that they can move into um and then just doing something to i mean i, I haven't obviously written the policy all just now it's um you know it's all concept but it's just i think we're not what we're doing right now isn't isn't working obviously so Mm. Why are we not looking at what other people are doing around the world to try and, and, and do best practice that's worked elsewhere? And then if it doesn't work here, then uh, fair enough. Let's try and reassess and see if we can, you know, fit it to work again. And that's where a lot of the issues I have with the laws and stuff that come out, we pass them and then it's not like it's not a probationary law. Like I'd love to see them bring a law in and then for six months it's probationary and then people have feedback on like, they're like, that was crappy because of this, this, this and this. And then it can be given back to the government to then rework it so it actually does meet the objective that it was supposed to. Um, That's an interesting concept. I quite like that concept because a lot of the things that you – and I was having this conversation the other day with somebody, and I won't name them because obviously they're not on the podcast to speak to themselves, and it was about legislation that the company had to then comply with and the amount of work, although the intention of the legislation was fantastic, um, the amount of work that that – then put on the business and that individual in the role that had to complete the paperwork. It was months of worth of work to comply mm. every year. And 
And a lot of the money that we waste in government is spent on mm. bureaucratic, like, you know, box ticking, um, as opposed to what it was probably initially. A lot of the ideas that they have is probably in there. Like, so this, so let's look at the Dan Andrews fines that he's got, he's looking at walking off the path and stuff. I know you're scared. Um, but, you know, walking off the path. So he's got a fine. I, I'd suggest that. The idea behind that is because I've done the Great Ocean, um, Great Southwest Ocean Walk, whatever it is down that way, and and there's places along the way that say wash your feet because there's you know fungus and stuff that gets transferred from one plant to another and it can and can cause a lot of effects. So if if his intent behind the fine is to stop is to try and stop that, then it needs to be explained that way um, because at the moment people are like as soon as you walk off a path you're going to get a fine. And that may be the case if the law isn't written very well, um, but it's not. You know, these but laws. Is that an just... actual law? I saw that on your social media. Is that <clears> an actual? <throat> is that in place now? Has that been passed, or is that proposed? No, that's a proposed thing that's coming in. Well, looking at coming oh, okay. in, and and again, the the idea behind fines generally is to try and do stuff for the better good. I would assume, like you speeding, you don't want people speeding because people get injured, or you know, drink driving makes you a worse driver, etc. So he, he may have a valid reason behind it, but I just haven't heard it yet. So whether that's because I'm in the wrong echo chamber or, or whatever, um, I, I don't know. But most of the times that people bring out these new laws, it's not doesn't really seem to be passed on the intent behind it. Um, and, again, that's why I want to go for the upper house rather than the lower house because as a independent or a minor party, you can actually have oversight on these things and then go, that's not, that doesn't translate well. And then you can ask questions. So then it's at least put into um, the records. So when the court looks at it and sees the intent behind it, the people who ask questions at the time, you can then go, are you trying to do this? Or what is the reasoning behind this that you've, you've decided to go with it? Why is it so much, et cetera? And then that then has to go back to the government who wrote the rules and then they then put in the intent behind it. So when the judges make rulings on things in court, they can go back to it and see what the intent was behind the law. Um, but that's why I like the idea of a, a six or 12 month probationary period where, like, look, this is the law at the moment. Um, you know, even if the fines are, I don't know, half at the time or whatever, um, then you can see what the issues were, where, where it needed to be fixed, et cetera. So you can at least go back to the drawing board and make it, make it work to fix what the actual issue was designed to be. What made you leave the police force and enter into politics? Because it doesn't seem it's not a career path that everyone would want to go in. I wouldn't want to go into it. Um, uh, but I, then I don't, I just don't have the patience for it. Yeah, it's, look, I'll be honest, I've never wanted to be a politician. Um, I have yeah. I have watched it a lot of the time and then had to turn it off because I've watched, I've watched Question Time. Yeah, and it just, just gets you angry. Hor- yeah, and just been horrified by it. I'm like, this is, I, got, I did debating in high school and it was a much better environment with much better outcomes, yeah. you know, than, <laughs> than watching the leaders of my country do his stuff. Um, but there's multiple issues. Like I didn't want to join a major party because I spoke to some other guys who had been in there and they said, it's you listen to your constituents, you then go to a party meeting. At the party meeting, you say, this is what my people want to do. And then the party leader goes, cool, but this is what we're doing. So you need to go back and sell it to your people. And that's when I was like, well, I'm not, I can't do that. I'm not going to a major party. But I also understand where people are coming from. They're like, you have to be in a major party to form government to get things through. 
um, which again is why I'm going for upper house rather than the lower house um, because you can get in at the top and then have oversight over the rules that come in. Um, ah. So that's sort of why I'm going there. But why I left the, the police in general was just everything that came in about the job that I disagreed with all stemmed from government policy. Um, mm. So the people at the police were still great. Um, you know, like the job is still the same that it's always been. It's just we, you get more and more hamstrung, which, look, I, I, me personally, I love the cameras. I think it's great. You can explain yourself. You can explain why you're doing things. Um, then you've got evidence of what happened. Um, generally, when you tell the other person they're being recorded anyway, they act a lot better than they would. Um, so I actually like the transparency, but I used to hate the fact that the government never used to release it. Like any time there was a complaint about a copper, release the footage. Sound and dust had fixed that day. Um, all this hiding stuff behind the scenes is what um, used to kill me. We have taser footage when we had jobs. Like CERT used to get a bit of a hard time in the in the media when there is both body-worn camera footage, taser footage, audio from both of those where when people make claims that we never announced that we were police or, um, you know, that they weren't, they weren't the person we were looking for when you've literally got recordings of what we were given about what they were wearing, where they went. You've got footage of a air wing where they run into a certain area. Then you've got taser footage of you announcing police don't move, drop, not drop the weapon or you'll be tasered, et cetera. And then when they get tasered, look, it's, it's all there. So I don't know why they choose to not release it. Um, so that, that annoyed me, but the, like the policy about, like, you've got all these policies about quotas and all these other things. And then, as a, as a trade-off, that means you then have to have more people RVing because you need to have more coppers there because it's not the fitness standard has dropped substantially, et cetera. Um, like all these things were just not going the way I was wanting them to go. And I was like, well, the only way I can sort of fix that is by trying to get into where they write those rules. Right. Um, and then when the mandates and things came in and I was just like, this is just a rock show. Um, <clears throat> yeah, and then just seeing... But well, people generally don't like coppers when you turn up anyway, because if we've been called to your house, you've done something wrong at least, and they generally don't want to see oh, you. Oh, you're but... having a bad day. You need help. Yeah. Um, yeah. But again, you still you still don't want to see us either way. It's not like fireys where you know the fireys walk past and everyone's like, "Yay, fireman! So exciting!" Um... Yeah. Shut your ass and hold a puppy. <laughs> yeah. You know, like even even ambos get because ambos are turning up when people are overdosing and they try oh, and save ambulances them. Ambulances are angels. Yeah, but they they get assaulted, yeah. um, so it's weird that I, I mean police are obviously the most hated, and then Ambos are second, and then Fireys just get a free pass to be in calendars and do whatever it is they want to do. Um, <laughs> yeah, poke, poke the bear, um, you know. But it's um, but it used to be you could drive past, you put the sirens on at schools, and kids would still be thinking it's cool. And if you walk past and you spoke to people, um, they were still happy to talk to you. Whereas now. You go anywhere near people in a uniform, they're scared. They're like, they're checking, they're like, oh, I don't have a mask on. You're like, well, that's over. Um, you know, or everybody everybody acts weird when a cop turns up now because they're, they're scared of them because of everything they've seen in the media. There, um, there has been a significant um, mindset shift again within the public, myself included, in regards to pre-pandemic and post-pandemic Um yeah, and, and look, like my, my grandfather was a 
Yeah, like my my grandfather was a was a bobby in England, and there was a police officer in the Victorian Police Force. Like, so I've always had that affinity with with coppers. I've never had an issue with them. I mean, I'm not out committing crimes. So I've never had an issue with them. But even so, I never had anything to fear against coppers. But now, I, like, I would record every interaction, and that's just from the last couple of years. Um, the shift in in perception. Mm. Um. Mm. And, and this was, and this is where, as a as a copper, because you wear a uniform, you're not seen as an actual person. Mm. Um, and then, but and you are just the 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 front man basically for the government. And if you hate the government, then the police are going to wear it. So, you know, the politicians aren't the ones who cop all the heat. It's when they write a new rule that is crappy, the police are the one who wear that. <clears throat> um, and then, you know, and then. If you don't, if you don't like the rules that have been put in place, you need to vote your government out. And but people don't see that, and they'll you know they'll, get they'll, involved they'll... in politics. Yeah, like you. Yeah. So you know, if, if you don't, if you disagree with it, you can sit there and complain about it, and then say the cops are all bigs or whatever it is. But when you, oh no, I don't think that. Well, not you don't, but I've. Yeah. There's a lot of people who say that. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, and and then when you go, cool, like what are you, what are you guys going to do about it? Are you still going to vote for Labor next time? And then they're like, well, yeah, because they do this and they do that. I'm like, well, the same. I'm like, that's cool. If you want to go that way, I said, but don't get upset about the rules that came in because you've voted for those guys. So, and that could be the that could be said about any political party that's in power. If the Liberals were in power, or if the Greens were in power, or whatever it might be, Hmm. it's not. That's not a um, direct statement against the current administration. Hmm. The um, yeah. you know, I mean, like the liberals have done a bunch of stuff, like made made deals about gas going overseas, which end up we have to buy back and cost us money. Like they're both, I mean, they're both doing stuff that isn't like well, isn't generally great. But yeah. so you're you're running under the Angry Victorians Party. Um, yeah. you're the state leader for that. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm so- state leader and and currently only candidate. So. I've got other people that want to run, but until we get registered, I don't want to offer them something I can't I can't give them. So yeah, if there's people who are running as independents uh, at the moment, or not even not even running because they only want to run with a party, um, I haven't really sort of pressed them to go out and do anything. I mean, they're, like they're making phone calls and things for us at the moment, um, trying to get us registered. But until we actually get registered, I don't want to do it. Same as um, I've really been asking for donations because. At the moment, are they going to donate to towards me or towards a party or whatever? So um, that's why I'm just trying to jump on socials and and do do those things and meet with as many people as I can to try and try and work mm. that out. Um, mm. But yeah, so we're running. I'm in the western region, which is sort of from Lara out to the South Australian border, and then it cuts through between Maryborough and Bendigo, and then goes up between Big Desert and Little Desert, and then out to the yeah, out to the South. I Australian noticed that you're running. On your socials, you're running the the pothole uh, hashtag, which can I tell you, the road coming back from South Australia into Victoria mm. is abysmal, and it is the Victorian side of it that is yeah. worse. Um, so yes, I agree that the pothole situation is terrible. Well, it's it's funny that we we run on all these um, ideological platforms, but mm. we can't even do we can't even do the minimal stuff right. Like mm. if you if you can't get your roads right, how are we trying to run on all these other issues where we can't talk about nuclear versus renewable energies versus things, and we don't look at things holistically. 
Um, you know, you need regional doesn't have enough um, hospitals, doesn't have enough employees, doesn't have the roads are crappy, doesn't have enough teachers. Some places don't even have a GP. So they have to drive 30 minutes to go to another town to go to a local GP. And it's like, well, okay, so health, agriculture, transport, employment are all things you can fix in the one time if you try if you fix the roads made a hospital did all that sort of stuff you'd, you'd be moving everything out and then cost of living is far less out there um but you also as a trade-off you don't have the same resources um you don't have access to things like you do in a city but i mean we can if we're fixing those things then people can come out and then you've got regional rail like we're looking at what are we spending 200 billion on a suburban rail loop and we don't even have a, a you know don't even have rail that goes to more than four times a day or something. And then the guys out there are going, our train line is 130 years old. You know, as soon as it gets over 30 degrees, they can't go faster than like 40k an hour or whatever it is. So that's even the case between Melbourne and Geelong. Train line, mm. as soon as it gets over 40 degrees, is sitting on 40k an hour. So you've got all well, this infrastructure that's already I mean, there. I used to live in Albury and I know that that track when I was a kid, when I used to jump on the train, was the same. I don't know if they've upgraded it now, but it was the same then as well because mm. the... For people that don't understand, when the rails heat, they warp, so they can't go fast. Yeah. So, you know, and you look at Japan, it's not a large country, and they're running trains that do 350k an hour. Did you imagine being able to catch a train from Horsham in 45 minutes to the city? You, like, It'd be amazing. Yeah, and you could then people could buy houses, they could live out there. Mm. Um, it's just, yeah, and then you'd take way more trucks off the road if you could run transport there as well. Um, I mean, the farmers still need to run their tractors and all that sort of thing. So your, your roads still need to be fixed for that. But they'll be getting belted far less from all the trucks that are on the road. But who knows? So you're running the Angry Victorians Party, which is a subsidiary. How do you describe it in regards to the um, Australian Values Party, which is the federal one? Yes, probably the yeah, subsidiary probably the way to go. It's Victorian it's branch? It's just, yeah, it's just the Victorian branch. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we're like, we're still AVP, but it was weird that Victoria didn't seem to respond all that well to Australian Values Party. Um, regional was okay with it, but the city seemed to think that we were racist pedophiles somehow because they made the assessment that Australia was like Australia Day and that was Invasion Day, and then so we were anti-Aboriginal, and then values came from Christians, which meant that we were all touching little kids, and I was just like, sorry, what? <laughs> it was it was just so bizarre that. Australian values went from what I thought was something that everyone could get behind to just yeah being, people just throwing shade at us for just crazy out crazy reasons and then angry Victorians is obviously not um you know it's quite divisive in itself but a lot of people are like well I am angry actually whereas other people look at it and they just go you guys just a crazy angry mob that are just trying to like burn burn the streets down so I understand but so- either way it starts a conversation. So what um what are your what are the party policies that you're running on? So statewide at the moment, our main thing mm. that we're trying to look at is we're trying to be we want Victoria to be like the leaders in mental health again. Um, mm-hmm. And it's interesting because when I came from policing in Geelong, we were the only place that actually went down um, with our three five ones, which is the arrests under mental health. Um, Geelong was the only one that went down. So everywhere else went up, like 100%, 160% some places. Um, so there are things, if you actively want to get involved, you can you can sort of help out that way. But Victoria, um, 
I don't know, especially with having so many lockdowns, like our mental health is really bad at the moment. Um, everyone was so isolated. Um, kids aren't playing sport like they used to. to um, you know, they couldn't go to schools. So they couldn't do anything. So I think that's that's one of the major but things. Adults as well. I mean, adults weren't able, we weren't able to socialise. We were locked down for yeah. two years, essentially, you know. Yeah. So, um, like even being yeah. on Zoom still is a bit triggering. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's like, oh God, I remember, <laughs> I remember this. You couldn't meet anybody. Um, <laughs> you know, like you, you see the app turn up and you're like, oh, <laughs> um, yeah. So there's there's that. But like, I mean, now um, I've been speaking to the the Ausnet Towers guys. Um, so me personally, I'm I'm running for the Western Region. So it's um, the the issues that I've had so far have been hospitals, lack of GPs, the roads has been a massive one, uh, lack of mobile service. Like you can go to Avoca. I went there for um, this pool comp that they were having and there's two pubs there and there was no reception. Like I, I couldn't ring anybody whilst I was there. And, you, and if you look at that from a police perspective, if you've got a bunch of guys who are drinking at a pub with a large drive to go home um, and there's no reception, you can't call a cab, like what's, what's going to happen there? So as a as a copper who prefers preventative rather than trying to punish people, I'd be like, well, if you had a mobile tower, they could ring their missus to come pick them up, or they could ring a cab to take them home again if they have cabs in the area because we don't have any regional stuff. So there's like there's things that you can put in place to stop people. You know, people can still live their lives, but they can get home safely. Um, you know, but yeah. So the roads, hospitals, Osnet towers being that they should be under the ground rather than over the ground. Um, hopefully meeting with them soon to um, learn more about that. But apparently that was put in place for a net zero of 2075 um, and they've had to change over 30% of it already, which means it should be by default going back to the drawing board. But um, I don't know, they're still trying to push that through for whatever reason. Um, and then, yeah, so mental health, hospitals, roads, Osnet Towers and mobile reception are probably the five five biggest things for the Western Victoria that I'm dealing with. And then hopefully mm-hmm. when I have somebody in the other regions, they'll have they'll have their own things that they're running on. But I don't I don't want my candidates to be basing themselves on some generic platform when they're local people where where it doesn't affect them. So the lockdowns, for example, stopped stopped at Lara. So um mm. well just just before Lara. So the people in Warraknabil, the lockdowns for them were like, we've never had a case. What like why did you lock us down? But they also didn't do anywhere near many lockdowns is in the city. So their issue with lockdowns was vastly different from the ones in the city. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you speak to them about it, lockdowns isn't their biggest issue. They're like, I can't drive anywhere without potentially losing a rim. <laughs> you know, so lock- lockdowns aren't their biggest issue. So I would rather the people in my my party were doing what their people asked them to do. Um, and even so, for example, if there's somebody in Bendigo who has an issue that's different from Maryborough. Um, I would rather they voted the way that their people wanted them to vote rather than what I'm trying to get for the people in Warrnambool is Bendigo and Warrnambool are two different places. But I'll speak for the people in Warrnambool and they speak for the people in Bendigo. So, um, I mean, when it's conscious votes on stuff, then we'll probably be on the same page. That's why we're in the same party. But overall, I would still rather them do what their local people um, have asked them to do. So it sounds like it's really whatever candidates are under the umbrella of your party would be really operating as an individual based on what their constituents want. Well, that, yeah, that's the idea behind it. Yeah. That's, 
I thought what well, that's what I initially thought politics was until I started getting into it. Yeah. Um, you know, like so if 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 your people are, are pro something and they, you know, you've got an overwhelming majority of stuff that they, they want you to do a certain thing, even if I'm like, I know I don't really like that. It doesn't really matter what I'm about because the people have asked me to do that. Um but when you get to the table, obviously if I just go in, they're like, hey, we're gonna that's it. We're not doing any more windmills. We're not doing any more solar panels. Um, and, and we're going to cut down all the trees. And then everybody in the city is like, whoa, 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 hang on. That's going to be an issue because this, this, and this. And I'm like, yeah, that's what they want to do. But how can we meet in the middle somewhere to make it work for everybody? Because um, it doesn't, doesn't feel like there's a negotiation going on anywhere. It sounds like it's we've got 51% of the vote in the city. We don't care what happens out in your area. Um, mm. You know, like marginal seats get far more cash than anybody else does. Look, if you voted Labor all your life, you're not going to get the same money that somebody who swings between Labor and Liberal does every time. Likewise, the other way around. If you vote a Liberal all your life and you don't have a Liberal government, you're not going to get, you know, like Labor are not going to pay money into a Liberal area. They'll punish you for voting that way. And then vice versa, Liberal aren't going to put money into a Liberal seat. Uh, sorry, Liberal aren't going to put money into a Labor seat to, you know, make them look good because they're going to try and punish them into voting the other way. So if you vote... Alternatively, every election, you will get more money than either of the other two seats. So it's sort of. So what do you, what a, do you think is the answer? Because people usually vote with who they've historically voted with. Do you think people actually look into the policy, individual policies of the parties before they vote? No. <laughs> so that's probably the first but, step for people to do. Yeah, and but not just that. Actually, go to like go to a branch meeting. Um, like if you if you've voted Liberal your whole life and never been to a branch meeting, are you doing that because it's like footy where you where you're like my parents went for Carlton, so I go for Carlton? Or are you or are you doing it? Because I didn't you even actually... know there was branch meetings. Like, where are these branch meetings being held? And like, are they only for members, or do you can anyone rock up? Well, I would suggest anybody should probably go. But like, if you're a member, you are entitled to go to those meetings. So. If you jump onto whoever your local Labor or Liberal person is or Greens or UAP, whatever it is you want to get involved in, and then email that person. But they have a um, they have an office, so you can go and speak to them, um, make a time to speak to them, or you can just join on, like jump on their websites and then become a member, and then they should email you with events and things that they're holding, um, and then you can go and speak to them. And then so if you are a, le- a member, though, you then get to vote on the policies that they go with, allegedly. I haven't been there. But they um, but that's the idea behind it that I've heard from people who have been young liberals and then jump into the actual Liberal Party and things. So if, if you actually signed up as a member, you get to have a say in what they where they want to go with things. So and this is another issue where you're like, oh, the Liberals aren't doing enough, and you're like, well, have you told them? Um, you know, or Labor aren't doing enough. Well, have you told them you don't agree with what they're doing? Um, you know, like there's at some point people have to take personal responsibility for the way things have gone is you get the government you voted for. So if 150,000 people voted for just drew a dick on a piece of paper or just didn't draw anything, it's like you could have voted in yourself. You know, if, if 150,000 people voted for you at the, at the federal election, you had a Senate seat. Mm-hmm. Um, so so is that what you need? So is that what you essentially need to get in, 150,000 votes? No. in that Well, so for the federal Senate, it's a lot more votes because you're covering the whole state. Whereas in um, Victoria, you have electorates and then you have like um, regions which have electorates in it. 
Um, so me overall, so each one has, I think it's 454,000 voters. And then each, um, each of the little electorates in that have 44,000 each. So you just need to get the most votes in the, in the electorate. But then I need to get, I think it's roughly 54,000 votes to get a seat outright because there's, there's five of them in each region. So if you get that so many votes, yeah. So if you get that many votes, you can um, you can get a seat outright. But then after that is when the preference system comes into it. Hmm. Well, good luck, Chris. Everyone needs to jump on to whatever political party they're thinking of voting for, but all of them, and research the um, candidates and who you're actually voting for to make sure that your vote counts. <laughs> Cheers, Chris. Cheers. Thank you very much. Thanks for taking a moment to listen, everyone. We hope this episode inspired you as much as it did us. If you know somebody who also needs a little inspiration, then please share this podcast with them. Also, don't forget to subscribe on your fave podcast app and rate and review us because that helps inspire us to keep making them. 